Hello, friends, and welcome to the show. This episode of HR Oxygen is brought to you by Boss Builders University. If you're looking to train up your supervisors and managers, please check out our newest offering, The Art of Being a Great Boss. In this 13-month program, I'll be taking your managers through our driving results curriculum, which includes topics on communication, performance management, motivation, delegation, problem-solving, decision-making, team development, and much more. The sessions are virtual, running one hour each month, and I'll do it personally using our popular sketch and seminar, graphic art and storytelling format. No boring PowerPoint, stale stories, and outdated tools and techniques. No theory. These sessions are engaging and provide tactical, practical tools that can be used immediately after the sessions. You can either have your entire organization take our program, or if you just have a few folks, join one of our open enrollment cohorts that start every other month. For more information, visit us online at thebossbuilders.com. Well, COVID has probably raised the awareness of addictions. There are people who probably did that pandemic quarantine isolation and maybe got hooked on some things they shouldn't have. That's one type of addiction. But there's other types of addictions that are a lot more subtle. Today, we're going to be speaking with Vitaly Buford. Now, she is an expert in diagnosing and treating the addiction to perfection. Now, imagine that, somebody who's addicted to perfection. She's going to share her journey with us, and it's a pretty tough journey. She's very open and comes right out and lets you know what's going on, but she also gives you some strategies on how to squash this really, really unhealthy addiction. Lots of practical tools here, but also a really great story. I definitely encourage you to get her book and engage with her if you want to bring her in to train in your organization. So why don't we quit talking about her? Let's talk to her. Time to take that personal item and tuck it under the seat in front of you. Buckle up that seatbelt. We're going to taxi out to the runway. It's time for us to take off. Should the cabin lose pressure, oxygen masks will drop from the overhead area. Please place the mask over your own mouth and nose before assisting others. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the HR Oxygen Podcast, the show focused on the overworked, overwhelmed, and underappreciated HR professional. And now, here is the host of our show, the boss builder, Mac Monroe. Vitaly Buford, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Glad you can be here today, too. The topic is one that's going to be a real interesting one. Now, I had a guest on Oh, a few months ago, and we talked about the addiction to being right. But today we're going to speak about a new addiction, and that's the addiction to perfectionism. And we're going to have some really interesting talks about that. That is something that I don't know. I would imagine that nobody would ever admit to it, but I suspect people around a person would say, oh, yeah, you definitely got it. <laughs> sort of like the addiction uh, to being right. You don't realize it on your own. So we're going to get into that. But before we do, Vitaly, I was hoping you could share something about your journey with us. Tell us about how you got to what you do today. Yeah. So um, I grew up in a perfectionism household. Um, I had two workaholic parents and an alcoholic parent. And I thought I needed to be perfect to be loved, which for me meant really high achieving in school, great grades and then and so that that mechanism served me well and carried me um, most of my life until I realized it wasn't serving me. And so when I was in college, I was introduced to Adderall. And for me, it was, quote, the perfect drug. And so I became addicted to it for 10 years and it allowed me to 
work 16 hour days effortlessly, stay thin effortlessly, but I was dying on the inside. And my corporate career was a huge success. You know, I was running the marketing departments of large law firms and then it just wasn't working anymore. And I was 31 years old and realized I can't live my life this way anymore. And so I've been sober for almost seven years and I became an HR director after that. And after becoming an HR director, I became a certified coach, an executive coach for leadership teams and executives and loved that and realized that was my passion, right? Um, helping people. And so I started my own business. And then when I read, I wrote my memoir in 2019, it was published last year, but I wrote it in 2019. Um, it's called Addicted to Perfect. And it's about my my addiction to perfection, how I overcame it. And I realized no one was talking about perfectionism. Like people touched on it, but not as a really big barrier in our lives, right? Because society tells us we need to be perfect. And so we've been working towards this, right? Punishing ourselves to success. And I was like, no one is teaching this, how it impacts our personal lives, our professional lives, how it impacts the workplace. So I did a lot of research, put my head down, did a lot of focus groups, a lot of coaching groups and created a lot of programs. And so that's where I am today. And I call myself the imperfectionist and I help organizations heal their perfectionism problem so that they can shift from a culture of perfectionism to a culture of excellence. Wow. Those almost sound the same, but from what I can gather from that little snippet of your journey, it's very different, isn't it? Yes. The difference between perfectionism and excellence. First, perfectionism is this false identity and it's very externally motivated, right? Fear motivated, where we are outsourcing our decision-making, our intuition, our self-worth to people and things outside of ourselves. It's when we allow everyone outside of us to be the expert of us, right? What do you think I should do and what decisions should I make? And so we're, we're so because we're trying to, to please other people, right? Our worth is in what other people think of us. And so that is perfectionism, right? Externally motivated. Excellence is internally motivated, right? It's trust based. It's courage based, worthiness based. Perfectionism is when you're the passenger of your life, right? It's when we're a victim of our life. Whereas excellence is when we're being the CEO and leaders of our lives because we have our, our choice back, right? Because we're, we're not outsourcing we're making decisions based on ourselves we consult ourselves for advice instead of consulting other people perfectionism is also when we're performing so when we are in performance mode always know that you are in perfection mode right like so when you're giving a presentation to a leadership team and you find yourself performing instead of being authentic that's perfectionism right i need to say what they want me to say i need this outcome of this presentation to be a certain way and that's when we know we're in perfectionism as well, right? Because we're, it's all about what the other people think versus excellence is when we show up authentically, right? I trust myself as a leader. I trust my skills and abilities, and I trust myself to present the information in the way that it should be presented. And then also perfectionism is when we seek advice. Excellence is when we seek input, right? Input, input is feedback based, collaboration based. Whereas perfectionism is advice-based. Well, what do you think I should do? It's very people-pleasing, advice-seeking. I'm only good enough if you like, if you approve of what I'm doing. And so we can, you can achieve the same, the same level of success. However, if you achieve it in the lane of excellence, you do it without all the anxiety, without the overwhelm, the obsessive thoughts that come with perfectionism. And so I don't know about you, but I want to be in the lane of excellence. <laughs> 
Well, you know, it's interesting when you were telling me that because I was thinking about that. So the difference between performance mode and excellence mm -hmm. mode. Yeah. But let's take, for example, like Jimmy Buffett. Like, let's say that's something on your bucket list. And finally, you get the tickets. COVID is over. The masks are gone. And Jimmy Buffett gets up and you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm here. And he says, uh, uh, just want to let you all know that um, I listened to this podcast with Vitaly mm -hmm. Buford and some bald guy, Max, something or other. And so tonight I'm going to be excellent. And I know that you want to hear Margaritaville and all of my, but you know what, tonight we're going to sing songs that my dad loved. So I'm going to do some uh, Frank Sinatra and some, uh, you know, some of these old times. He would be crushed. Like, I want to hear him sing Margaritaville. Right. But if authentically he's wanting to show up, I mean, that's his choice, right? Is he, is he showing up to, and also, I mean, he, I, I can't speak to him, but I would say that he authentically loves what Margaritaville invokes in his fans. Mm -hmm. Well, you know? I mean, I mean, yeah, it's a, just because I always think about that. Like yeah. Jimmy Buffett's like, God, if I have to sing that damn song one more time, I'm going to scream. Right. And that's why you go, you know? Well, I've done many a concert where the artist that you're going to does like the newest record. And I'm like, darn it. But, um, but yes, performance versus authenticity. Yeah, well, I know it's a strange thing. I want to talk about application, but before yeah. we do that, I'd like to go back to your journey a little bit, if you're okay with that. Yes. First of all, what is Adderall? Who is that actually for? Not just for people with perfectionism. Who normally would take that? It's definitely not for perfectionism. It's for people who have ADHD or ADD, so hyper um, atten attention deficit disorder. I did not have that. And so back in the day, they were prescribing it to basically anyone who could list the symptoms of ADHD. And so I got it on college because it's often used as a study drug on campus. So I would like when school was in session and in person, you could probably go into any college library and find Adderall. And that's how students, a lot of them pull all nighters. And that's how it started for me. It allowed me to work two jobs and take an 18 hour course load with with a fair amount of ease and successfully. And so that's how I got hooked. So the condition. So ADHD, is that a person that struggles to focus? Because I remember my brother, my little brother had it. We didn't know what it was called back then, but we looked at old Super 8 videos and he used to walk around just shaking. He was like, we say you're hyper, Marshall, you're hyper. And he yeah. would do weird stuff. Now, back then, no one got any medications. He just did terrible in school. But it seems like now that has a name and with a named condition comes people who will prescribe. Yeah. Right. Stuff for it. Right. right. And the, for the people who really need it, it works. But I abused it. it. I did not need it. I am like, I do not have ADHD. I do not have ADD. And I knew that. And I went because I thought it gave me an edge. Right. It, I thought this makes me perfect. I need this to succeed. I need this drug to be perfect, which is to feel worthy, to feel enough for people to like me. And so my Adderall addiction was merely a symptom of my perfectionism addiction. Okay. Now, when you were going through this, did you have a lot of classmates that were similar to you in that? Because you said you go to the library and find it. Because I mean, for me, I'm a lazy student and I'm a horrible student, but I don't know whether that would have helped me because... I hate school. You obviously were driven. So for me, what I would just stay up all night playing video games where you stayed and studied, right? 
Okay. Yeah. Okay. So the, the danger would be worse when you took this, I mean, and I'm not doing this. So people say, boy, I need to get some of that because obviously this is bad, yeah. but did it, did it make you, I mean, I describe what it felt like to be in that mode. Yeah. So I was not present. So I would be maybe on this podcast with you, but I would not be present. I'd be thinking about the next thing. So I was never in the present moment enjoying my life. I was always on to the next thing. I was obsessive. I was, I am already an intense person. <laughs> I'm intense about what I do. I love what I do. And I was even more intense and I would say a little bit manic. Um, but it's so funny because I thought I needed to be successful. I'm so much more successful and fulfilled without it. And, um, and just so grateful for my journey because it led me to being able to teach these things. Yeah. So what impact did that have with your friendships, relationships when you were doing this? Did that impact it? I mean, when somebody hung out with you, they say, hey, Vitaly, let's just do Netflix and chill. And you'd be like, no, let's do Netflix and push-ups. I mean, was that what it was like? Or Well, work was my priority, right? Okay. So I hung out with my friends. On, this was in my 20s, right? So I would party with my friends on the weekends, but I was all about work. Work became first. Work was my identity. And that can be someone's issue without Adderall, right? Work is is your thing. It's your identity. It comes first before anything. And, and that can be unhealthy, right? And that's a symptom of perfectionism, right? Workaholism, over-identifying with your career and your work, not having an identity outside of it. So my friends didn't know. It was a very silent addiction. Okay. So how were your grades during this time? Did you set a standard and hit that standard in terms of, I mean, was it straight A's or for me, it would have been to get a C I'd have been like, Woo. Yeah. Well, so already, what was it for you? I already made good grades, but yes, I made straight A's on it, but it was, and I only did it for a few semesters because it was later in my college career that I discovered it. Um, but I was already self-motivated and made good grades. I just thought that it was like, Oh, it makes me that much better. Mm-hmm. So did that have the impact with your parents that you had hoped it would, or was that not affected? You know, again, I was in college and then a young adult. So they were just happy that I had a, a job and I, they weren't paying for me anymore. So they didn't know because again, like the people around me didn't know that I was on it. Um, I wasn't, you know, falling asleep or any of those things. There weren't a lot of signs or symptoms and they also only knew me as that. Um, so it didn't, necessarily impact my relationships. It was just, I wasn't present. I wasn't living my life. I was unhappy. I wasn't myself. I was constantly at, um, at what everyone else, the whim of what everyone else thought I should be and do. And so, and I was so far disconnected from who I am and I wasn't able to trust my decisions because I didn't know who I was. I would say that the most, um, powerful thing about healing my perfectionism is building my intuition and self-trust. Yeah. So how did that happen for you? I mean, did it just pop in there or was there some process that you followed to get you? Because I want to find out too, like when you graduated and started in your first career, did that drive continue? Yes. The, dr the drive definitely continued. I am a very driven person, but it just made me, it, A, I over-identified with work, but also... Um, I was able to work ridiculous hours. Like I was working seven days a week and it wasn't like I was being asked to do that. I was just, that's the kind of person I am because I was building departments. I was building teams. I was, had a lot of responsibility at a young age. And so um, it allowed me to work a whole lot of hours. But the thing is, is that 
it required like my also my um, tolerance for it grew. So what I started taking the level of prescription that I took at the beginning was much different than the end. And my addiction and my tolerance couldn't keep up. Yeah, I would imagine. So while you were in this first mode where you were really driven, what were the people saying about you? Because you said it was performance versus excellence. I'm assuming you were still in performance mode, right? I was definitely performing. (laughs) So what kind of accolades did you get when you were in that period of time? I mean, I won tons of awards, you know, like at age 25. I I mean, I was I became the department head of of the marketing department at a law firm at age 25. You know, I was top 40 under 40. I was literally leading on, you know, the cover of the local business publication because I was doing all these initiatives, which is me naturally anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, But I had associated it with the Adderall. And so when I got sober, I was so afraid. I was like, what's going to happen to me professionally? And what happened to me professionally is way better. (laughs) (laughs) So when did it end? What was there a moment when you just said, I'm done with this? How did how did you go from that person driven internally and chemically to what you have become today? When did that happen? Yeah. So my prescript, my tolerance had grown so high that I was requiring four different prescriptions from four different doctors, which is illegal. And and so for me, I just I'd run out of I'd run out of Adderall. I was 31 years old and I was scared to death because I thought I needed it to be worthy and loved and enough and successful. You know, it was like this this lie. I didn't but I didn't know any better at the time. And so it was interesting. This was in May and I got sober on June 7th, but this was the end of May. And I'd hired this executive coach to coach my attorneys on executive presence. And he was a friend of mine and he was, we were in the car together and he looks at me and he says, Vitaly, are you critical of your employees? And I looked at him because again, as someone who is addicted to perfection, like feedback and criticism, you know what I'm saying? Like I take it personally. I'm like, that means I'm a bad person. I'm not good enough. So I was not wanting to hear that. And he could tell, right? Because my reaction was like, who do you think you are telling me that I'm critical of my employees? You've seen me interact for five minutes. And he looked at me and he goes, no, no, I think you're critical of your employees because you're critical of yourself. And then he told me the phrase that changed my life. The phrase is, I see in you what I refuse to see in me. I see in you what I refuse to see in me. And so what happened was I had no idea what any of that. He like dropped all these knowledge bombs on me. And I'm like unaware. I'm like, what is happening? I don't know what, but I'm angry at you, but also becoming aware. And so a week later, my mother came to visit me and she had been drinking at my house. And I got so angry at her pointing my finger. Why can't you just get sober? I'm so sick of this. And then I remembered that phrase that he told me, I see in you what I refuse to see in me. Hmm. At that moment, I realized I'm pointing the finger at my mom to get sober, but I am refusing to get sober. Wow. makes me kind of emotional even saying it. It was the most powerful moment of my life. I was like, oh my gosh, I see in her what I refuse to see in me. And literally a week later, like I admitted I had a problem. I drove myself to rehab and my life has been, has, you know, has been different ever since. And and so that was the moment for me. I see in you what I refuse to see in me. Wow, that's that is really heavy stuff. So you you had this watershed moment. Yeah. You went to rehab. Now you almost made it sound like you were there for a weekend and you popped out. And now you're talking around the world about addiction to perfection. I suspect it wasn't that quick, right? No. no. So so what was that interim time like? 
Yeah. So I, I was in rehab for two weeks, which is a short period of time comparatively speaking. So I was in re cause they right now people, there's not a huge recognition of Adderall as a, as an addiction. I mean, it's, there's more awareness now, but seven years ago, not so much. So I was in rehab for two weeks inpatient. And then I did three months of intensive outpatient, which was like every evening during the work week, I went for like three hours um, and did, you know, just, it was, you know, literature on sobriety and sharing and all of that, which helped me acclimate back into the world. But I mean, I went straight back into the law firm life. Mm. And I couldn't like, literally, I remember the COO calling me the day I got out of rehab and he's like, can you come back tomorrow? <laughs> I <was> like, <laughs> and I was like, yes. And I did, but it was a totally different feel. Right. Um, and so I realized like I was work the, the law firm life wasn't for me because it was 24 seven, seven day, you know, like every attorney emailing me at all hours, which is, is fine. It, it served me when I was on Adderall, but I realized like, this is not the life that I want for me. And about a year after I got sober, I was like, you know what? I want a different career. I want to be the COO of a company someday. I had no idea it would be the COO of my own company, but I was like, I want to be the COO of a company someday. And I was like, you know what? I need to learn HR and, and I need to learn finance. So I want to become an HR director. And a company knew that I was strategic and they hired me. They knew, they knew I had no like actual HR experience, but they knew I was strategic enough to know how things work. And so I became the HR and employee partner. And then I became a coach, right? So I was leading the executive team and I was like, this is great that you all want me to be a coach, but I need formal training. Mm-hmm. And, and through all this too, like I was still going to like 12 step meetings and I was, my sobriety was really, really important to me. Um, and, and so then I started my own business. So here I am. Well, again, I think you're leaving some significant steps out. Cause I mean, you make it sound like, Ooh, this could be pretty quick. So tell me what it was like when you started back at the law firm minus Adderall, did your performance slip from where it was at that high level? Did they notice it and say, Vitaly, what's wrong with you? They didn't notice it. I mean, I- it was more of my own stuff, right? Which we are as, as, as humans, we are our only limit, right? Ourselves, we get in our, we are the ones that get in our own way. And so for me, it was that, you know, me being really hard on myself, you're not good enough. You know, like I didn't have as much, like I didn't have the energy to work 16 hour days. And so I had to give myself permission. Like you were allowed to work a regular work day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it was, it was that more so was the pressure I put on myself to be good instead of the others. Like I showed up, but I wasn't as motivated because it didn't feed me like my soul. That work wasn't like my soul work. And so like giving myself permission to really explore other things was really part of the process. Yeah. The Adderall was the gasoline on the fire that was really the issue in the first place. It sounds like, right? Well, and it was. And the thing is, is I got sober, but like, I still like, I had an eating disorder after I got sober because it went from Adderall to, you know, body image issues to workahol, you know, and really it was like, oh my gosh, like it was never the Adderall. It was my perfectionism. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to be an Adderall addict for perfectionism to impact you. Like perfectionism is pervasive. 97% of people struggle with some form of it on the spectrum. It could be like severe perfectionism or mild perfectionism, but it impacts 97% of people, which is huge. (laughs) 97. Oh my God. Uh, Yeah. That is a lot. Yes. Um, 
And that's based on the research, like my own survey um, that I know. But I mean, that's, I, you know this better than I do. That's just, it seems like, wow, it's no wonder people would feel under pressure if basically, you know, 3% are not that way. Right. Well, I must be one of the 3% because I half ass <laughs> almost everything. So. Well, but most people are like, well, I don't need things to be perfect. And I'm like, no, no, no. I'm not talking about like needing to have be perfectly organized or have a perfectly clean house. Like the symptoms of perfectionism are, you know, procrastination, right? Analysis paralysis or putting things off because you're afraid that if you started, it won't be perfect. You know, indecision, right? Going back and forth on a decision or making a decision and then questioning it or not being able to make a decision because it's not going to be perfect enough. You don't trust yourself having unrealistic expectations of yourself and others, like the pressure to perform, avoiding conflict is a symptom of perfectionism, right? Because you don't want to have that difficult conversation because we can't control other people. Wow. You know, um, people pleasing, advice seeking, um, the need for control, comparison, right? Is a symptom of perfectionism, imposter syndrome, feeling like a fraud, not speaking up in meetings, right? Like people are going to judge me. And a byproduct of all this is like overwhelm and anxiety and I mean, and a high level of stress and these obsessive thoughts that we get into when we're in perfection mode. So it's a major deal. And when you can clear these things out of your way, right? So instead of they'll still come, they still come up for me, but they don't run my life. Like that list of symptoms that ran my life. And so they don't run my life anymore. And I mean, anything is possible when you can remove those barriers and you're able to have aligned productivity and joy and fulfillment in both of both your personal and your professional life. And so it's like, why not? Like, let's clear out all these perfectionism cobwebs and, and show up in the way that we deserve to show up. Man, that's amazing. And a lot cheaper than Adderall, I would imagine too. Way more effective. Yeah, there you go. As I achieve now is, nothing compared to that. Um, and I look at that former version of myself and she was doing the best she knew how to do at the time. Um, and obviously it's part of my story because now I'm able to help people overcome their perfectionism, but truly perfectionism, when you can remove it, like life changes. And that's why I'm so, I'm committed to turning every perfectionist into a recovering perfectionist. <laughs> Good. Well, I want to get into steps to yeah. do that. Yeah. Before we do that, though, so tell me now, you are now the, you own your own company. Mm -hmm. So tell me how you, what you do now. Do you speak? Do you coach? How does that work? And then we're going to get into diagnosing this. Yeah. So I do a lot of, so my, uh, my real passion is doing a lot of training within companies. So I do corporate training programs. I speak at company events. And really diving in deep to company culture and changing it in terms of perfectionism. So helping organizations really switch from a culture of perfectionism to a culture of excellence, which is trust-based, vulnerability-based, aligned, productivity-based. Um, and so that's my passion. But I do, I love to speak and I run group coaching programs and I do a little bit of one-on-one -on -one coaching for executives. Um, but yes, like really digging into corporate culture and training high level leaders on how to overcome it. And then also teaching their teams how to overcome it as well. Okay, good. Well, the people that are most likely listening to this interview today are either a HR professionals who are overwhelmed, overstressed, and often underappreciated. And we may also have some folks listening who are managers who are right now at this point, sort of overwhelmed with it, not feeling confident in there. So for them, 
we want to figure out a way that we can help them through this because in both cases, they're the, they're, I think they are the catalyst to make change. So before we talk about strategy for them, can you give me the uh, characteristics of a perfection driven culture versus one that is excellence driven? Yeah. So um, a perfection driven culture is one that, um, you know, is, all about micromanaging versus um, allowing people to make their own mistakes. It's one that has a fixed mindset instead of a growth mindset. It's a culture where people don't speak up. They don't feel like there's a space to speak up. It's where people are procrastinating on projects, right? So leaders are also burnt out. There's low engagement, low connectivity. Information is not being shared because departments are in silos, right? So there's no um, interdependence, right? There's independence. Um, there are so many different things. Um, high expectations versus, you know, allowing people to really be in that growth space. But it's a space where it, it is. It's all fixed mindset. There's no change happening. People feel their growth is stunted. They don't feel like they can be entrepreneurial, right? There's no autonomy, Um there's no place for, for mastery, right? The, the three biggest motivators uh, for people are autonomy, um, mastery. And then for some reason, the last, the third one's escaping me, but there's no space for that, for people to be motivated internally and space for them to be, to be given that creative um, permission mm -hmm. and really low confidence because perfectionism is a confidence killer and it is a creativity killer. Wow. That almost sounds like when I was in the Navy zero defect mentality yeah. and you're stuck. You commit for five, six years, you're not, you can't quit. So it works and maybe there's a purpose. Right. But you suggest that there's a better way. So what would a company or organization look like that was then excellence driven? Yeah. So a company that's excellence driven, there's going to be two way communication. They're going to have, you know, an open door policy. Um, team members feel, you know, safe, to speak up, they feel safe to be vulnerable. Um, the, the the leaders invest in um, in their team members in terms of their development and their growth. There is a lot of feedback, and I would say radical candor, a lot of trust base. Right, trust is not a nice to have; it's a must have. And in cultures with perfectionism, there is very low trust, and so excellent cultures are trust based. They are performance-based and um, they are growth-based. People are connected, engaged. People feel valued because they are communicated with, right? They know their role and how it plays into the bigger vision. So they're motivated. It's um, a culture that takes action versus waiting, right? It's that progress over perfection mentality. Okay, very different. I would imagine that retention would probably be better in those excellence-driven. Right. But yet there still are organizations that are perfection driven and still right. people that gravitate toward that. Would that be because they may have that addiction too and this feeds it or yeah. do they just not know another way? I would say both, right? Okay. So maybe that perfectionism is the only way they know, right? Or perfectionism is how they've been achieving success. They don't know any other way. And it's really, I mean, it stems, it's, it's a cultural thing, right? Because I can teach a, a leader, I can teach a manager, for example, how to overcome his or her imposter syndrome, right? Mm -hmm. Like I can teach him or her how to overcome that. 
But if the person that he or she reports to doesn't create a safe space to speak up, there's no growth that's going to happen. So it requires really change on all levels of leadership, right? I can't like it. You also have to have the leader who's like creating a space for people to feel safe in meetings, to speak up, to give feedback, to come to you and say, you know, I set this deadline and I was wrong. Like it's going to take two more weeks. Well, normally the people that pay attention to the culture and you've served in this role, and that's a big part of our listening audience today, the HR professional right. who now as you know, as a result of listening to this interview with you says, Oh my God, I had no clue. We were a really perfection driven culture. I can see how this is hurting us now. Now, how would I communicate that to the C-suite, particularly now, maybe the financial folks who say, what the hell's the problem? We're like bringing in clients left and right. Our revenue is going crazy. What's the possible problem here, Vitaly? What would an HR person have to do to convince that this isn't sustainable? Yeah. So it's about looking at also like, so you're, you're meeting the deadlines that are people burn out. Are they unmotivated? You know, are they, is there such a high level of stress that people are, are truly experiencing burnout? And there is a stress, there is a difference between burnout and stress and burnout is not <laughs> a good thing. And so we're having high levels of burnout. People aren't connected. People aren't engaged. They're doing their work, but it's this pressure to perform. You know, there's no line between your work and your life. They're working on the weekends, 24 hours a day, and it's only sustainable to a certain degree. So it's really taking pe it's companies that are forward thinking, right? A lot of companies aren't going to be brave enough. Mm. They're not going to be brave enough to say, I care about my people and I'm actually going to take the long view. Yeah. from the company instead of the short view. Yeah, great, you're you're making that, but how long are you gonna be able to sustain that? And do you wanna drive profits even greater? Hmm. Because if you create a culture of excellence, the profits that you're getting now, they're gonna be way better in a culture of excellence. And it's gonna take a little time because culture change obviously takes time and bit by bit, but it's gonna be a, a company that's more connected, more engaged, much more profitable companies, the employees feel value. There's less turnover, you know, higher retention. And so I want to work in a company that fosters a culture of excellence, not yeah. one that has perfectionism where I feel constricted and restrained and I don't have freedom to make my own decisions and make mistakes and learn from them. And that, that, that has forgiveness, you know? Yeah, no, it sounds definitely like a better place to work at least yeah. long-term. It would be that way. So we're going to talk in just a moment about how to connect with you to be able to help set the culture. But what would your advice be right now to the person who's just listened up to this point and says, oh, my God, she just she knows me just like your coach gave you that phrase that it didn't resonate at first. But then suddenly when you saw your mom, it came to life. What would you recommend for the person listening now that says, I didn't know it, but I'm definitely an addict, not even to the Adderall. What would that person, what should be their first step? So I think it's, you know, it's being brave enough to say, you know, I want to, I want to choose something better. You know, like I don't, I'm not, I'm not okay with this way of life. And there's another way to live because I believe as leaders, we lead at our level of awareness. So if we are not aware, our leadership style reflects that. And that's how I approach all training, right? Is about, 
teaching people how to lead themselves with excellence and then teaching them how to lead others with excellence. Because if I teach you how to lead others, it's not going to stick. I need to teach you first to uncover how perfectionism is holding you back. And so I would say the first step would just say like being honest with yourself without criticism or judgment and saying like, there's actually another way to go about this and I can do something different and being brave enough to do that and seek doing something different. Okay. So awareness and then making the effort to turn that around. Right. Well, for a person that's listening today and says, okay, well, uh, I definitely have this problem, but not only that, we have culture here. Yeah. How can our audience reach out to you, Vitaly, and have you come in and help them sort this mess out? How do we reach you and how can you help us? Yeah, let's change to a culture of excellence. Um, so they can email me. It's just Vitaly at Gmail. Or they can you know, reach me on LinkedIn, which is just Vitaly Buford. Um, but those are the easiest ways. I'm also on social, other social media platforms. But email, um, my website is VitalyBuford.com. There's not a whole lot of Vitalys running around. Uh, or Vitaly Buford's, obviously. Um, and so I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, but yeah, just my website, LinkedIn, or email. Okay, perfect. And so for us to get a copy of your memoir, The oh, yeah. Addicted to Perfect, how do we find that book? Yeah, you can find it on Amazon or Audible. Excellent. Well, I tell you what, I do a lot of podcast interviews. Very rarely do I get one that smacks me right between the eyes and says, oh my God, I guess I got to do a little bit of reflection here. Because again, I didn't see myself that way. But now that you've kind of given me those indicators, I'm wondering, okay, maybe I need to start unpacking this. And I suspect there may be more than a few that have listened today. So Vitaly, thank you so much for being so open and letting us into some of these dark areas that you've gone through. Uh, I think it's gonna be a really good thing for all of us to think about. And you've certainly raised the level of awareness of how dangerous this addiction can be. So thank you for spending some time with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I just love spreading the message. So thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the HR Oxygen Podcast. We hope you found something today that will relieve your stress, feed your soul, and pump you up to face another day. At Boss Builders, we want to let you know that we appreciate the hard work you do every day as an HR professional. And as a reminder, always make sure to adjust your own oxygen mask before attempting to help those around you. Be well.